Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of I Society, Donald Spoto. Donald Spoto, author of High Society, The Life of Grace Kelly. You interviewed Grace Kelly apparently quite a few times for this book. Why'd you wait so long to write it? It was a great pleasure to know, to know Grace. I was preparing the manuscript of my very first book, which was a critical appreciation of all of Alfred Hitchcock's films. And I felt it would be important to talk to a few of the most important actors and associates and writers of Hitchcock. So I wrote a letter in the summer of 1975 to Princess Grace and asked for an interview. Frankly, I didn't expect to get a reply because she rarely gave interviews. And that part of her life as a Hollywood star was long over. Well, I had an immediate reply from her secretary inviting me to meet with her actually at her apartment in Paris in September of 1975. And I went over and spent the day with her, interviewing her specifically about Hitchcock, but about other directors as well. And at the end of that afternoon, she volunteered to write the foreword to that book, which floored me. This is my first book. I was a young author, first time out of the gate. And she said, if you'll send me the finished manuscript, I would love to write the foreword. It's about a director I respected and have very fond feelings about. Hitch was still living at the time. And she said, I think you'll do a fine book. I sent her the completed manuscript. And on Christmas Eve, I had, by diplomatic courier at my home then in New York, I received this beautiful foreword, which was published in The Art of Alfred Hitchcock, which 35 years later is still in print and it still bears Grace of Monaco's foreword. Now, that began a wonderful friendship. The following year, she invited me to the palace at Monaco, and I presented her with one of the first copies of the finished published book. And we just became very good friends. At one point in our, in our meetings, I said to her, who's going to write your biography someday? Or will you do a memoir or an autobiography? And she laughed, and she said, well, frankly, Donald, I'd like to think I'm too young. She wasn't even 50 at the time. She said, I hope I'm going to have a long and productive life. Um, she said, but I'll tell you what, you do it, but wait 25 years until after I'm gone. And she looked at me with a twinkle in her eye, and we both laughed because what that meant was it'll probably never get done. She'll live a long life. I'm only 12 years younger than she was. Well, as we know, fate intervened, and she left us at the age of 52 in 1982 in, in September. And out of respect for that conversation, I did wait 25 years. And in 2007, 25 years later, I set to work gathering all my tapes of all of our conversations together. And I had done a good bit of research because she figures in other books that I wrote, and the result is just published this week on her 80th birthday. Did they tell? Did she tell you things during those interviews that would better have waited till after she was gone? I or think was she, she just being overly cautious. I think she trusted me, and she wasn't overly cautious. I think once we had established that, she would say occasionally, 
you know, don't quote me on this yet, or this is off the record as long as I'm around. And I think she sensed that I would honor that. And I did honor it. She spoke very frankly about her background, her years in Philadelphia, her time in New York as a model, her years in Hollywood as an actress, and her life as a wife and mother. She was enormously trusting and enormously forthcoming with me. Was she like that with other people who were interviewing her? I don't know, because um, I didn't speak to other people who, to whom she granted interviews. She was, of course, very guarded with people. She prized her privacy uh, and that of her family. She didn't go around uh, disclosing herself. Why, sh why should she? Why should anybody? But we had a very unique friendship. I enjoyed that with a number of people who, whom I've interviewed over the years for my books. Ingrid Bergman also became a great friend. I don't want to sit here and drop names, but sure, it, go the, ahead. The, drop. The, the people <laughs> I met and got to know, many of them befriended me and I them. So it became a very rich adjunct to my career. What was she like to sit down and spend a day with? Grace was just fun to be with. She was as interested in you as you would be in her. Um, she had an interest in, in everything. She particularly liked writers and actors and dancers and painters and creative people. She had a delicious sense of humor, sometimes slightly risque, not shocking, but slightly risque. She was, in other words, as they say today, a real person. Did she have to be restrained or kind of play a role of princess? I never noticed uh, anything uh, role-playing about her. Of course, when I knew her, she had already been Princess of Monaco this time by mm, al almost 20 years. And her children were, you know, grown and growing up. And uh, she had no veneer of artifice about her. And um, it was easy to be with her. In five minutes, she put me at my ease, and we sat there, and she poured tea, and we munched cookies on that first day until twilight fell in Paris. And it w by the end of the afternoon, we were friends. And I only discovered years later, some, some of it during her lifetime, but a lot after, the enormous help she was to my career in recommending me to uh, places around the world that had film festivals, would ask her for a, uh, to be present for something, and she would say to them, as a scheduling conflict, I can't come, but you really should ask Donald Spoto to come and do this. He's the one who... And when I learned this later, I thought, how thoughtful of her, how generous, and she was a loyal friend. Why you? Well, that I don't know. You'll have to ask other people. I, I, I don't know. Now, you used the phrase Princess Grace of Monaco. For people who don't know, what is Monaco? Monaco is a principality nestled between France and Italy on the Riviera, and it's been an independent principality since the 13th century. Um, it's, uh, it reverts to France if there's no legitimate heir, but that hasn't been a problem. And for many years, for a very, very long time, it was, in the words of Somerset Maugham, a sunny place for shady people, um, notoriously corrupt, uh, money laundering, international crime figures, uh, all that kind of thing. When Grace married Renier, it was in trouble. Together, they changed it. Uh, they made it attractive for ordinary tourists. Grace opened new clinics for children and for old people, uh, a ballet company, 
um, uh, theatrical companies. She revived the Monaco Opera. She made a difference, is what I'm saying. And uh, today, Monaco thrives, thanks to Grace and Renier. How many people? What's the population? Well, the population is the population of a, of a small city. The actual uh, Monegasque citizens, it's about 30,000. But then there are people who come in from France and Italy to work there. So. You say in the book that as she was princess, she would just walk around and go to restaurants and people could walk up to her on the streets? Absolutely. Grace insisted, and it took a while. Her first years as a princess were enormously difficult for her. Why? Well, she had left her country, her home, her family, her friends, her language, her career, and suddenly she was pitchforked into a very strange, unfamiliar place where the traditions of court were antique, and in many places absurd, where well, ladies she, all had to wear hats. Ladies all had to wear hats. Um, the, the traditions of court, the courtiers and the palace staff were not remotely friendly to her. She would say, for example, oh, we're having a few friends in for dinner tomorrow night. I would like to have flowers here and flowers there. And the major domo would say, we don't do that here. It took her about five years to be able then to say, from now on, that's what we do. So it was not a happy time. It was a very, very difficult adjustment. However, with the help of her husband, and also she had the great joy of, of having two children right in a row in 57, 58, and that was a great, great joy for her. Um, she finally found her voice. And when she went out in the street, walking the, with the children in, 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 in carriages, she just insisted she would stop and say good morning to the shopkeepers, and she would take the children to the public beach. And by, I would say, four or five years, the people of Monaco had just fallen madly in love with her, as who did not, who knew her. <laughs> what possessed her to give up a career as a Hollywood star, Academy Award winner, to, to go off and be a princess? It's really very simple. Grace hated Hollywood. She loathed everything about it. She never had a home there. She rented an apartment she used when she was making pictures, but as soon as the picture was over, she hastened back to New York City that she considered her home and Philadelphia, of course, because her family was always here. But after making 11 films in four and a half years and finding Hollywood a very depressing place and always having as her prime goal, I want to be a wife and mother, she was introduced to Renier quite accidentally, and uh, this was the man of her dreams. And she, after, you know, at the age of 26, she married him, and it ha so happened that it, titles came along with it. But she married him because she fell in love with him. It's that simple. Did she like being a princess? Well, most of the tasks and duties and demands of that life of a minor, minor aristocratic royal. Um, it's very tiresome, shaking hands and pretending to be interested in boring diplomats from all over the world. She, she was such a dutiful woman. She was so responsible that one never caught her boredom. And, um, you know, in situations like that. So did she like being a princess? Let's put it this way. She felt great responsibility uh, as Renier's wife, and she never failed in living up to those responsibilities and duties. Her great pleasure was in being with family and friends and bringing friends over to Monaco. And
tending to her children. When she was a princess, did she come back and visit her Philadelphia family? Oh, Grace was a regular visitor to Philadelphia, absolutely. In fact, very shortly before her death, she was here in Philadelphia uh, receiving a tribute and hosting various charity events in early 1982. She never forgot or would let others forget her Philadelphia roots. She was really a daughter of Philadelphia uh, with everything that rec you know, that, that involved from being born here in, in the autumn of, of 1929. She, of course, came from a very well-to-do family, but immediately she graduated from high school and, and went to New York to enroll in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. She always wanted to be an actress. She refused ever again to rely on her wealthy family for so much as a nickel. Never. And um, I think she deserves high marks for that. How did her family get wealthy? Her family got wealthy before World War I in the construction business. Kelly so for brickwork. Yeah, Kelly for brickwork, precisely. And the Depression did not affect their, their financial standing at all. Will you tell me about her dad? Because she and her dad seem to have an interesting relationship from your book. Grace was the second of three girls, and there was also uh, a boy in there. But John Kelly's great value for his children, as far as he was concerned, was to be an athlete. And Peggy, the oldest sister, was an athlete. Grace was not. Grace wanted to study dance and acting and read books, and Grace was also extremely nearsighted. She had to wear glasses in order to see anything more than a few eight or ten inches away. And um, so she didn't live up to Papa's expectations. As late as when she won her Academy Award Best Actress of the Year for her extraordinary intense performance in The Country Girl, the local press here uh, in Pennsylvania and the national press as well beat a hasty approach to the Kelly's door and said to Papa, well, you must be very, very proud of Grace, Academy Award winning actress at the age of 24. And he said, yeah, we were rather surprised. We never expected anything good to come from her. So he wasn't exactly all charm. How did she get along with him? Did she Grace put up made with it? it work. She was such a loyal daughter. She, she made it work. She ignored the unpleasantness and um, tried to always speak well of her family. Late in his life, um, he begrudgingly had to develop respect for her, and that's the way the relationship went. I want to read this. Uh, Grace's father, when he met Prince Rainier before they were married, he said bluntly, royalty doesn't mean anything to us. I hope you won't run around the way some princes do, because if you do, you'll lose a mighty fine girl. Yes, as I say, he wasn't all charming. I mean, imagine speaking this way to someone you've just met, you know, I mean. So it, 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 the initial meetings of, of Renier and Grace's family were not easy, especially since Mama, Grace, Grace's mother, you know, turned to the TV cameras that first, first day at the Christmas time of 1955 and said, I just can't imagine my daughter marrying the Prince of Morocco. I can't see Gracie on a camel riding in the desert. And Peggy and Lausanne, the sisters, were there and said, no, 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 mother, it's, it's Monaco. It's Monaco. That's in Europe. But still, she'd have to wear all those heavy clothes in the desert. And she just didn't get it for a while. Did mom and dad go to visit her in Monaco? When, once they went occasionally. Mostly Grace came to visit them here. But they came over there. Of course, they were there for the wedding. 
in April of 1956. But, but uh, the Kellys did not like movie stars and movie actors. John Kelly felt that they were all depraved and immoral. This is interesting coming from a man who made a fine art out of serial infidelity. <laughs> now, uh, in, uh, we have not talked about her movies at all, so we probably ought to talk about yes. that. Um, how to, first of all, how did she break into movie making? What was the path? <clears throat> well, it was very interesting. She did the full two-year program at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts from 1947 to 49. In the fall of 49, she turned 20 and was instantly cast in an important Broadway play. Now, in those days, of course, the movie studios were frantic to sign up as many young actors as they could because of the threat of television. And Grace, they wanted to offer her a contract, but she wouldn't take a contract. She wanted to be a stage actress. She did, however, take advantage of the offer to go to Hollywood for a short role in a single movie called 14 Hours at 20th Century Fox. She appears in it for two minutes. And she made the movie and hastened back to New York to pursue her stage career. As it happened, there wasn't a lot forthcoming, not because she wasn't talented, but there just wasn't a lot that was right for her. She was, however, constantly busy doing live television dramas. She did no fewer than 36 live television plays. And many of these have been preserved. They're available at the Paley Center, formerly the Museum of Broadcasting, in New York and Los Angeles. And several of them have been released on DVD. And she is simply astonishing. That was noticed by Hollywood as well. And along came uh, her agent with an offer from Stanley Kramer, the producer. And all of a sudden, she was cast in a Western with Gary Cooper, which, of course, became High Noon. And uh, that really catapulted Grace into the limelight. Following that, she was given a chance to work for the legendary John Ford with a leading man, Clark Gable, and they were off to Africa to film Magambo. Hitchcock saw a few scenes and signed her up for no fewer than three pictures. So it was a career that was enormously successful in a short period of time, but it also wearied her because in four and a half years she did 14 films. It's a record that has never been met by anybody else. As I say, in Magambo, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and she was uh, then nominated and won Best Actress of the Year for The Country Girl. Although she was under contract to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, she did only four films for them. They kept saying, we don't know what to do with Grace Kelly. How do you cast her? Well, she's pretty, but what are we going to do with her? So they loaned her out to other studios, making a fortune in the process. You, uh, you quote uh, a director, George Radoff, as saying, um, I was in the two category for a very long, oh, Grace recalled, I was in the two category for a very long time. I was too tall, too leggy, too chinny. I remember Mr. Radoff, the director, kept yelling, she's perfect. What I love about this girl is she's not pretty. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? Gregory Radoff was a, was a Russian immigrant actor and director and producer. And yes, it's a, and she quoted that to me. You know, Grace said, well, it was very refreshing because Mr. Radoff d really didn't think I was pretty. And she said, I didn't either. I was trying to get by on my talent. And uh, I, I remember saying to her, Grace, you already had a hugely successful career as a model before you went to Hollywood. 
They didn't choose you as a model because you were eccentric looking or an old crone. But she didn't see that. She, she saw. But Radoff was funny. Yes, he wanted her because she wasn't pretty. Who can tell? What kind of modeling did she do? She did every kind of modeling you can mention. She started with print ads. She did television commercials in the days of black and white TV commercials. Um, she was sent to Paris to do uh, fashion modeling. Um, she was one of the highest paid models in New York by 1950. She was earning 4000 a week, which is in 1950 was a huge amount of money. I mean, who would turn it down today? But it was a huge amount of money. When she went to Hollywood, she earned a great deal less than that. For most of her career, she was earning 750 to 1000 a week. And, um, but it's what she wanted to do. She didn't want to. She was very, very, very intelligent about this. She realized that a model's days are numbered. Not only do they get tired of the same faces, but by the time you're 28 or 30, you're considered too old a model. And she didn't want to just keep on doing this anyway. Her life sounds too good to be true. I mean, it sounds like a charmed life, growing up rich, going off to being a, a successful model and actress. What, what did she have? Did she, did she have connections? Did she know people? What, what did she, she had do no connections through her family at all. And in fact, it was anything but a charmed life. Uh, Grace said to me one day, and I use it as a full-page epigraph right up front in my book, the idea of my life as a fairy tale is itself a fairy tale. Uh, let's start with her childhood and effective rejection by her father, who favored the others. And of course, the boy, John Jr., Jack Kelly, was the apple of his father's eye and got ruined by his father's eye because he, he could never do well enough in the international sport of, of sculling, you know, rowing. Uh, although they were both Olympic uh, medalists. Um, so her early years were indifferent. Uh, her years in Hollywood were, for the most part, happy and successful, but she hated the place. As she said to me, I saw only alcoholics and people with breakdown, people af afraid they wouldn't have success and afraid they'd lose it if they got it. She said it was a dysfunctional society and I didn't want to make my home and my career there. In addition to that, being absolutely beautiful, fun-loving, uh, she fell in love frequently but each of these relationships, not that there were dozens, they were not contrary to unscrupulous writers, um, they were disappointing. She found actors and, and young American men immature and disappointing. And when they didn't drink too much, two of her suitors were confirmed alcoholics. And she found out in short order that love wasn't about to reform them. She was always essentially attracted to older, more clever, more experienced, well-educated European men like Jean-Pierre Aumont, the actor, and of course the great uh, Oleg Cassini, the designer. They were engaged for a year, but when it became clear that he didn't intend to give up his other girlfriends after they were married, that cooled her passion. So, uh, and then she married, and as I mentioned before, those early years in Monaco were not easy. After the birth of her first two children, she suffered a series of miscarriages that pitched her into a dark and grim depression each time. So it, it wasn't a charmed life. It wasn't. A, and she also had, as, as she and I discussed, and I elaborate this throughout the book, she had that sense of, shall we call it, a dark Irish Catholic sensibility 
she suspected the world. She, she had trouble with the world. She relied on God, but she was very cautious about the world. And that gave her life, of course, a great gravity and a great grounding and focus. Grace never spoke about it casually and never made a, a, an extravaganza about it. But she was a very devout woman. She was, religiously, she was a very devout woman. She took her, took her faith very seriously. Was she happy when, in, in the end well, as a princess? Are we? I mean, happiness, I think, is a mood that shifts with the weather and the day. Um, I think that, in fact, she was asked that herself in a long interview with Playboy magazine in 19, the early 70s it was. And she, they said, are you happy? And she said, happy? She said, I, I think I'm grateful for having the opportunity to do the work I do and for having my children and, and my husband. But uh, the older you get, I think there's a, if you're living appropriately and seriously, there's a certain serenity that helps to ground you, rather than the mood of always looking to be made happy. Grace never looked to material goods or material security for happiness. She had always had that and realized that a true life is based on something else. I have to ask you about a movie that she made late in life that has never been seen by anybody. Can you, what is Yes, it? indeed. Um, I never knew about this until I was doing my research. But the year before she died, and up until a few months before, Grace decided to return to films with the encouragement and, of her husband. And her friend Jacqueline Monsigny, the French writer, uh, said to Grace, well, let's write a script and do a production. The short of it is that they, they put together a film, a comedy, a hilarious comedy, in which Grace plays herself as the Princess of Monaco in that time of the year when she sponsors an international flower show. And the film is called Rearranged, so it's got several levels of meaning. And her co-star was the American actor Edward Meeks, and they made this comedy, which I have had the privilege of seeing many times, thanks to Jacqueline and Edward and my friend Diane Baker, the American actress who introduced me to Jacqueline and Edward and arranged for me to have access to this. It is simply enchanting. It shows that at the age of 50, Grace had lost not only none of her beauty, but none of her talent as a major exponent of what we call high comedy. It's hilarious. It's a typical French farce about mistaken identity, all of it done in English, because they had in mind first an, an American market. And um, it's, it's simply delicious. It's totally delightful. They brought the rough cut to New York and showed it to the networks who were over the moon. And they said, if you add three or four minutes to this, we, when we add commercials, haha, uh, we'll have an hour-long special and it will sweep the country. Well, they were thrilled. They went back to Monaco and this was in May and they agreed after the summer hiatus and they'd be working on some thoughts during the summer and in the fall they would get together and do the few final scenes. Well, the few final scenes were never shot because Grace was taken from us in, in September of 1982. However, in its present form, it certainly is viewable. It has a beginning, a middle, an end, and the few scenes they wanted to do, it can do without. However, when she died, Prince Renier was so devastated by this. He was so, P 
pitched into grief that he put the master negative in the archives down in the basement of Monaco, and there it sits. Now, of course, Renier died several years ago, and the children have been approached. The fact is they're not remotely interested in seeing this or in releasing it. Their attitude is, um, yeah, well, we've heard enough about Mother. So there it sits, and we'll probably never see it, and I think it's a darn shame. How did you manage to see it? I saw it through the good offices of the woman who wrote and produced it, who has a cassette. And I've seen it several times in California and in Paris. And each time I see it and sit with them and study it and respond to it, it's simply hilarious. Are there bootlegs floating around? No. No. Hmm. Well, we should talk about other movies of hers that, that people can see. You mentioned High Noon. It was her first Hollywood uh, experience, how'd she do? Well, um, Grace said to me, it was actually her second after those few scenes in the thriller 14 Hours, and then she found herself Gary Cooper's leading lady. Um, how did she do? She said to me that when she saw the finished film in a screening at United Artists, she jumped up and fled and said, if this girl, her exact words to me, if this girl doesn't do something quickly and get serious, more dramatic, d more drama lessons, she wouldn't even have a career. She jumped on the plane, went back to New York, and studied seriously for two seasons with the great Sanford Meisner, Sandy Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater in New York. She took her career very seriously. Now, when you look at High Noon today, some people would say, well, it's a little awkward and she's not convincing. It's supposed to be awkward. She's the young, virginal, Quaker bride of a marshal who's hunted down by crooks he sent to jail who were released, and she's surrounded by violence, and her brother was killed in violence, and she's a Quaker, she's a pacifist. It's an awkward role. It's also a little bit underwritten. But I don't think it's such a terrible performance. Neither did the directors who then flocked to her door wanting to work with her. What did critics say? The critics didn't really review her. It was all about Gary Cooper, who got an Oscar, of course. Uh, she was only mentioned in conjunction with Cati Hurado, the Mexican actress who was the other female player, and a number of other men who were in it. She really wasn't singled out at all. That was directed by John, the great John Fred Ford. Zinneman. Oh, oh, yes. John Ford was Mogambo. John Ford then came along and, and offered her the role in Mogambo with Clark Gable, Technicolor MGM shot in Africa. Ava Gardner described John Ford as the meanest man on earth, thoroughly evil. Yes. In fact, Henry Fonda, who rarely said anything improper about anybody and who made something like eight or nine pictures with John Ford, Henry Fonda said he was a tyrant. Nobody could endure him. There's an interesting story here because Grace's uncle Walter, not as famous as her uncle George, the great George Kelly, of course, great American playwright, but her uncle Walter was a comedian and a vaudevillian. And Walter had appeared in silent films and early sound films under the direction of John Ford. So when Grace arrived on the set and was introduced to John Ford, she said, Mr. Ford, I'm so, so thrilled to be working with you because my uncle Walter Kelly had always spoken so highly of you and enjoyed working with you on thus and such a film. And he chomped his cigar and said, ah. Okay, um, then she told me the story about a moment during filming 
Magamba when she was off on her own and not needing. She was reading the script and rehearsing her lines, going over her lines and figuring out how to move. And he called her and said, Kelly, what the hell are you doing? And she said, oh, Mr. Ford, I'm, I'm just uh, having a look at my script before we shoot in a few minutes. Come over here. He grabbed the script from her hands, tore it into shreds, and said, we're not filming a script. We're filming a movie. So, I mean, you know, he really wasn't the easiest chap to work for. <laughs> well, how did she react to that? You almost picture somebody who would want to be a Hollywood star as having an oversized ego to start out with. Grace had no oversized ego to start with. She didn't have a high opinion of herself. She was always thrilled. And in that picture, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress of the Year. Even years after she retired, Grace said, I, I don't think my career is anything remarkable. I was so young, so inexperienced. She said, I can remember filming The Country Girl and thinking, I could do better five years from now. Well, five years later, after she'd retired from the screen, uh, she, she told me that she said to herself, I think after I've been married 10 years, I could do better. She always saw there was room for improvement, and um, it's a very nice quality. Was it sort of expected that she would retire from the movies when she became a princess? Grace did not at all expect that when she retired it would mean the end of her career. She certainly knew that it would mean uh, moving over to Monaco and being a wife and mother and getting to know her duties, and she wanted to raise her children, but she fully expected that when that was done that she would go back and fulfill her contractual obligations for one or two more pictures for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Well, by the time that happened, say 10 years after her marriage, by the mid-60s, they weren't making Grace Kelly films. Same thing happened to Audrey Hepburn. They weren't making Audrey Hepburn and Grace Kelly films. They were making Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, The Wild Bunch, The Dirty Dozen, there was a sea change in the quality and type and genres of movies. There was no place for her. Well, let's uh, talk about um, some of the movies that go back to some of her movies. First of all, you wrote a book about uh, Alfred Hitchcock that you mentioned earlier. How did she get connected to Alfred Hitchcock? Well, Hitch saw, as he told me in great detail, Hitch saw a few short black and white excerpts from High Noon and recognized whatever he needed to recognize and realized that this very pretty, untutored, but obviously talented young lady would be perfect for him. They did three pictures together, of course, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, and To Catch a Thief. And she was really his muse. Grace was um, poised. She was a quick study. She took direction eagerly and obediently. She wore clothes magnificently, having been a model. Uh, she was just a dream. And Hitch adored her. Everybody adored working with her. And those three films remain three of her finest achievements. And um, it was a great working relationship. But again, she found her own voice. She wasn't just a slavey. You use the phrase ice maiden, that she had this image as an ice maiden and that Alfred Hitchcock liked to have a, a woman lead who was an ice maiden. What, what does that mean? And well, Hitch invented the phrase ice maiden, and it, it bears no resemblance to the truth. 
nobody was less icy than Grace. What Hitchcock liked throughout as this started in his career in the 20s was a beautiful, attractive, especially blondes because they photographed better against dark backgrounds, um, a cool, poised, elegant manner, and he could then surprise the audience by revealing that they were very passionate, and so he could put them in love scenes. So this was part of his mechanism in, in presenting actors in stories that were things were unexpected. And Grace, particularly in Rear Window and To Catch a Thief, was simply gorgeous and acted beautifully and did her love scenes very credibly. So it was a perfect conjunction of director and actress. What was so special about Alfred Hitchcock? Well, Hitchcock, in my estimation, I've written three books about him. Uh, Hitchcock was a genius, arguably the greatest director in the history of Hollywood. And he made films expeditiously. He worked brilliantly with actors and crew. Um, he wasn't a backslapper. He didn't have fun with them. He kept a very professional atmosphere on the set and expected others to act professionally and to be on time and to know their lines. And if they didn't, they got fired. And Grace was terrific because she was also very serious about her career. I knew Alfred Hitchcock very well in the last seven years of his life. I spent a great deal of time with him. I was with him when he made what turned out to be his last picture, Family Plot. And um, my first book, The Art of Alfred Hitchcock, which Grace, to which Grace contributed the foreword, um, was published when Hitch was still living and he gave a huge celebration and made a television tape for it. And of course, that helped my career considerably. After Hitch died, I was offered the opportunity to write his biography, which I did, Dark Side of Genius. And that's still in print after 26 years. And then last year, I published a book, because I'd been asked many, many things over the years, specifically about Hitchcock and his leading ladies. So last year, I published Spellbound by Beauty, Alfred Hitchcock and his leading ladies. And I was able to use material that I'd gathered over many decades from people that wasn't immediately relevant to the biography or People had asked me, wait until I'm gone to use this, please. And I've always honored requests like that. Now, Alfred Hitchcock produced, directed movies that were written by a lot of different people, a lot of different types of movies. What is it that he brought to the, to the film that made it an Alfred Hitchcock movie? And you really think of those as Alfred Hitchcock movies and not as the movies of the people who wrote them. I think the Hitchcock trademark is <laughs> that these were movies made by adults with adults and for an adult audience. Um, it's very difficult to find such products today. They were really, all of Hitchcock's films are variations on the romance. Even Psycho is a romance. It's about a man who, who goes off the track in a demented love for his mother. Uh, it's about a woman who is led to grand larceny, uh, believing that a sudden flow of cash will enable her and her lover to get married and move away and live happily ever after. All of the Hitchcock films are variations on the romance. Love lost, love derailed, love sought in the wrong place, love betrayed. And I think that's why, you know, 30 years after Hitch's death now, just about 30 years, uh, his films are still shown all over the world to audiences in wildly different cultures, and they still touch people because they're human stories. Now, if 
people were working for Hitchcock and he was directing them, did he tell them exactly how to do it or did he give them a lot of latitude? Depending on the actor or actress, he would give latitude. He wanted to see what little bits of business they had thought of when they would do a rehearsal before a take. But generally, everything was in the script. As Ingrid Bergman told me, you know, you, you come to a Hitchcock movie and everything is in the script. What you're going to wear, where you're going to move, what your accessories will be, what color the wall will be painted, what the decor will be composed of. And that is a great help to actors. A hitch always used to say to people, play the clothes. The wardrobe was already designed and suited, and, and he would say, put the clothes on. And it worked remarkably often. But um, yes, um, Hitch exerted meticulous control over every aspect of his production, thoroughly prepared. And um, this, of course, was, a, was wonderful, people, people who worked with him. They didn't have these long delays. They didn't have a chance to get bored. He brought things in under budget and on time, so he became the darling of producers and the studios. And he made a fortune. Well, you say in here that um, during To Catch a Thief, Hitch told us to improvise some of our dialogue, and you talked about how she and Cary Grant were making up some of the lines. Yes. Is that unusual? That's very unusual. He trusted Grant. It was his third of four films with Cary Grant. It was his third film with Grace. And he and the writer had a little trouble with this particular scene in... Um, supposed to take place in the waters off Cannes. It's really a studio tank, of course. And um, he said, well, let's just try a few things, you know. And Carrie and Grace had known each other and were getting on famously during the picture. So they prepared over the previous weekend. They sort of sorted things out and had fun with the dialogue. And they got together and Hitch said, well, what have you got for me? And they ran through it and he was just thrilled. He was over the moon about this. And they had fun doing it. And I quote that whole scene in the book, in fact. Was she good at comedy? Ah. Grace was arguably our finest exponent of high comedy since the young Catherine Hepburn. If you look at Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Swan, and particularly her last film, which gave me the idea for my book, High Society, you find a woman of extraordinary comedic gifts in high society. She has a number of sequences no one could do better. Uh, she is uh, drunk at uh, the engagement party or the, the, the night before her wedding. The next morning her hangover scene is done to perfection. The early scenes, she is just right on target. Nothing is overplayed. When, the wonderful thing about Grace in her films is when she smiles, I defy anybody not to smile with her. That smile just lit up a room. And high society is just a great, great joy to watch. I mean, it's an extraordinary performance. How'd she learn to do that? I think she was a talent. I think one is born for the, for the finest aspects of the acting talent cannot be taught. You can be taught technique. You can be taught voice. You can be taught when little bits of business should be used and when not. You cannot be taught how to tap into an essentially um, an innate sensibility about how a character would behave. And Grace was just a terrifically fine actress. Fact of the matter is that 
I think particularly in this country, people have the idea that if you're very pretty and very successful, you can't possibly be a good actress. You have to be an eccentric or a character player to be good. Grace was everything, really. Now, you have written quite a few books about movie stars, uh, let's see, uh, and, and other show business people, Lawrence Olivier, Tennessee Williams, Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, James Dean, Ingrid Bergman, Francis of Assisi. Yes. Um, but sticking with the Hollywood ones, uh, what is your impression of Hollywood? We talked about Grace Kelly's impression. I share her low regard for Hollywood. Uh, even in its golden age, when it produced a number, accidentally a number of fine products, it's never had a high regard for people. It uses people. It chews them and spits them out. Um, it, it's a place where the, the greatest value is blind greed and ambition. It exploits people's neuroses. And I think it takes a very special kind of moral courage for people to survive Hollywood. We've all known people who were destroyed by it, who were exploited by it, but we've also known a few who survived it, mostly by insisting on having private lives apart from Hollywood. Grace hated it. What's the attraction to you that would make you want to write so many books about it? I'm, I'm really interested in creative people, and I'm interested in how really gifted creative people interact with a larger world. So. Hollywood is such a furnace, it's such a fulcrum, it's such a testing ground of how you will achieve a real life and establish good relations and, and you know, be a loving partner, spouse, friend, mother, um, that this is the place where you have a chance to make it or not in the more important things of life. Also. I'm almost 70, and I grew up going to the movies on, on Saturday before television, you know, took over. So I, I had a chance to see great actors on the screen from the age of five. And you can imagine then when I, when I, became, I, I became a university professor and took my doctorate and taught university for many years before I, I became a writer. And it gave me a certain respect for serious research. And I've always had a, a motto, especially as a biographer. The biographer is obliged to tell the truth even if it means saying something good about somebody. <laughs> and I have found remarkably often that um, that's not true, that many people, if they don't see dirt, will make mud for the sake of a quick buck. And I just, I, my conscience couldn't stand <laughs> that sort of thing. Would you have a hard time writing some of the dirt about people if you really genuinely liked the person? Like you liked Grace Kelly. Yeah. If there was dirt to be written, did oh, you no, kind no, of Oh, no, no, not dirt, but the truth. That's different. Uh, I, I never fudge on the truth, and I know that subjects about whom I've written, Grace included, would have hated that, any whitewashing of anything. But I do believe there's a context for everything in life. Um, and the biographer has to assess conduct, not judge it but assess it. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that, for example, um, it, it, were people good friends? Did they kick the cat? Were they honorable in their relationships? Did they develop ideals and try to live by them? This is what makes for a good and reasonable life. 
And that's what's worth exploring. I don't think you have to provide a laundry list of everything they ate at every meal and how often they went out to eat and how often, I mean, this is just plain boring. As Chekhov said, we need to know more about the subject than we tell. Um, today's readers seem to be rather obsessed with sex. I think everybody has the idea that everybody else is having more and better sex and they, they want to find out about this relative to famous people. Well, I don't fudge on the truth, but I will not make things up. And I found that in this regard, I'm one of a few writers. Um, things are taken for granted that you invent sexual affairs to spice up the book. I don't know how they can live with themselves for doing that. If I cannot corroborate that by people who knew them, to whom they spoke, that it's well established, you don't, you don't put it down. I, I, I'm not sure that sex tells us very much about a life anyway, unless it's pathological or criminal. Have you gotten negative reactions from any of the subjects you've written about? Well, I don't write about living people because the story isn't over. I made an exception in one case, my biography of Elizabeth Taylor, published in 1995, because it really focused on her life through her career, and her career was over. Uh, but other than that, I don't write about living people. It, 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 there's no the end yet. Uh, so I, frankly, I've never had negative reactions from survivors, friends, or, or family. I will say that some of the press in certain places uh, I've taken hits from. Most recently, the book on Grace, the, with a few wonderful exceptions, the English critics didn't like it and they all expressed the same reason. We cannot take seriously or believe a book in which the author likes the subject. Excuse me, I, I think that tells us something so profoundly mean-spirited and ugly about the culture. You, you, I mean, I, I don't know why one would devote time and talent to writing about someone for whom you have contempt. I've got to be moved by someone's achievement, um, their legacy, or their life in order to be drawn to celebrating them in uh, however many pages. I guess that's why I could never undertake the life of um, a tyrant or a dictator or even a politician. Uh, I, it's not my gift to write about sports figures or scientists or people in politics. My interest is the creative life. And also, uh, trained as a theologian, uh, I've, I've written books about Jesus of Nazareth and Joan of Arc and Francis of Assisi, and I wrote a book on prayer. Um, so th these, are my, these are the things that feed me that I hope will nourish readers as well. Where were you trained as a theologian? I took my Ph.D. at Fordham University in New York in 1970, and I, I concentrated in what we call theological literature. I, I took a degree in scripture. Not a, I wasn't a clergyman, never intended to be a clergyman, but um, I had the languages. I had the Hebrew and the Greek, and what has interested me in that regard is how do we humans use language to talk about what can't be talked about? The, the literary nature of expressing a transcendent experience. And that was terrifically important for me, and always has been. It, it is to this day. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's been a wonderful balance in my career. What did you want to be if you didn't want to be a clergyman? A teacher, university teacher. And where did you teach? 
Well, my first two years, I taught high school for four years while I was getting my PhD. And then I taught at Fairfield University in Connecticut from 1966 to 68. And then I was, my happiest teaching years, I was the chair of the theology department at the College of New Rochelle, a hundred-year-old women's college in, in the suburbs of New York. And then I taught at the New School in New York. When I moved to California, I taught at the University of Southern California. And then as my fourth book became very successful, I was able to devote myself full-time to writing. And teaching had changed, not entirely for the better. So it's been a wonderful career. And you now live in Denmark. I live in Denmark. Why? Yes. Why not? It's a great society. Uh, the, the, the true and fuller answer is that uh, I met the great love of my life. And he's a Dane and has a marvelous position as a, an academic administrator at a school. Why would anybody leave Denmark? And I'm a writer. A writer can write anywhere. So I relocated to Denmark and have never had a second thought about it. Now, in uh, the time we have left, we just have a few minutes left, and, and we have barely touched on The Country Girl, uh -huh. for which Grace Kelly won an Academy Award for Best Actress, and a couple of other of her lesser-known films. Can you, I guess she, her, her Hitchcock movies are probably the, the best-known and, yes. and High Noon, but what about uh, The Country Girl? Well, The Country Girl is simply brilliant. Black and white picture, Bing Crosby, William Holden, in which she has to play a frumpy, weary, plain, to the point of homely housewife who's been living with this alcoholic, failed ex-actor, living in a cold water flat in a rancid neighborhood. And Grace is simply fantastic in this role. She breaks your heart. And it's not surprising that she won the Academy Award because it, and all these, all her films are available on, on DVD and our, our viewers can, can easily get them and see for themselves how remarkable she is. Also, I want to mention a picture, her penultimate film called The Swan, based on a play by Franz Molnar, set at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. An amazing film. She's not just beautiful, she's poignant and funny, and watch her fencing scene with Louis Jardin, it's simply remarkable. And of course, her last picture, uh, released picture, High Society, it reveals that she was not just a pretty face, she was an extraordinary talent, and there, I don't think, was any, any, anybody like her. And there was a movie, Green Fire, which oh. it was, it was not a success, apparently. Green Fire is something Grace used to laugh about when we talked. It's so bad. And I was fortunate enough to interview her co-star, John Erickson. And uh, it's so bad. It was so badly written, so badly produced. It's set in South America. They had a terrible time shooting scenes there. It's a bore. I mean, people can see for themselves. She looks great. She tried to make it work. Nobody could make it work. It was just bad. <laughs> if someone has, is watching this and they have never seen a Grace Kelly movie, which one should they start with? Well, it depends, I suppose, on which genre they, they like most of all. I, I think they could do no better than, than watching High Society and The Country Girl and Rear Window with James Stewart, the Hitchcock comedy thriller. I mean, these you can watch again and again and again and again and be highly entertained and very moved by these performances, too. 
And if someone has never seen an Alfred Hitchcock movie, which movie should they start Oh, with? I suppose Rear Window is a great place to start. Uh, how many books have you written? 25. This is number 25. What are you working on next? Well, I just submitted the manuscript for number 26. A rather large manuscript, in fact. But once again, I felt there was something more, many things more important and truthful to say. It's a big biography which will be called Possessed, the Life of Joan Crawford. Now, is she somebody you, you said you don't, why would you write about somebody you don't like? Do you I, like I didn't her? dislike her. Um, when I was 11 years old, I saw her film Sudden Fear, and I wrote a letter. I was a brazen little kid. I used to write letters to Walt Disney and Loretta Young, and I wrote a letter to Joan Crawford, and I said how much I liked her picture, and my mother said to me, don't expect a reply. Well, I had a reply, uh, and later learned that Joan Crawford was famous for answering virtually every fan letter that came her way. And I wrote that I was 11 years old and I thought her performance in Sudden Fear was wonderful and that I even read the novel on which it was based by Edna Sherry, which I did. I was in sixth grade. And I had this reply from Joan Crawford, which I've saved to this day. And thank you for writing. And I don't get many letters from 11-year-old boys who read the novels as well as Anna. And she said, I think, I hope it's a successful movie, and I think Mr. Jack Palance will have an interesting career, and it was fun working in San Francisco, and please stay in touch. I hope we meet one day your friend, Joan Crawford. So from my preteen years, I thought she was an actress to, to take seriously. And then, over the years, so much rubbish has been published about her. And again, I've waited. I've waited and waited for all that to, and now's the time. She's an extraordinary woman, 84 films from the silent days to Steven Spielberg, a great professional. And I had the confidence of, uh, of Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who was her first husband, who would never hear a word against her, and a number of other people who knew and worked with her. So it was a thrilling book to write, and I hope people will find it so when it's published. Did you meet her? No, no. No, Joan died in 1977 and had been sick for a number of years, although we lived on the same block, actually. But she had been desperately ill with cancer and sort of out of the running for, for a while. And again, a last word on Grace Kelly. If somebody, again, knows nothing about Grace Kelly, what should they know about her? Well, I think everything that's between the covers of the book. This is a major actress who had a serious life that was not charmed and easy. Uh, it was a life of responsibility. She was a good wife and mother. She made mistakes and learned from them. And it's altogether a life story that, that, that deserves attention. Well, if you want to know more about Grace Kelly, this is the book we've been talking about, High Society, The Life of Grace Kelly. And we've been speaking with author Donald Spoto. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.